Good evening and welcome to City Watch here on WBAI. This is a watchdog program for social, economic, political, and cultural issues here in New York City. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and you were just listening to Consabor Latino with Nando. I'm happy you're with us this evening. If you were uh, out yesterday, the fourth annual Women's March took place here and in cities across the country. Not as big a turnout as in previous years, however. From what the uh, accounts have uh, reported, it was obvious that people were out there focused largely on our president and the impeachment and issues like health care, equality and immigration. Lots of news going on typically. Uh, in addition to the Women's March, on a personal level, I did want to bring up something that uh, for you jazz listeners, uh, if you uh, had not been aware, a, a, a jazz legend had just passed away today, Jimmy Heath, a gentleman who I've had the pleasure of working with a number of times for his performances with the Queen's Jazz Orchestra at Flushing Town Hall, 93 years old passed away at home in Georgia. I know him from his time in Queens, actually, uh, down the road from Nando and I, if I think about it, down, uh, what is that, uh, 30, I should know where I live, 34th Avenue, when I went to pick him up to take him to a TV interview. Really wonderful, legendary man. This is one of the biggest names. I played with some of the biggest names in jazz, like Miles Davis and John Coltrane. He had died early Sunday this morning in Georgia of natural causes, according to his grandson. Uh, we I, we here at WBII extend our condolences. I talked with a, a representative from Flushing Town Hall who had told me uh, that he had spoken with Jimmy's wife and that she explained that he didn't even want to go to the hospital at the last second because he wanted to be surrounded by his family at the time of his transition. So here in New York State, just this past week, a new law went into effect, and it's called the Clean Bill of Adoptee Rights. This legislation, now we've talked about it a little on WBAI when I was here on Thursday. I know that uh, it was reported on in our news segment after my Driving Forces show, but I wanted to focus a show on this today. Uh, this legislation restores unrestricted access to original birth certificates for all adult adoptees for the first time since these records were sealed in the 1930s. We're going to talk about this today with a few experts, people on the front lines. Also find out what some of the opposition had said and some of the criticisms of opening up these records and how, you know, they had kind of countered this in explaining why this was the right move to do here in New York. And will this send a signal to other states that they should be taking action similar to this? So we're going to talk about that with our first guests. Uh, do we have our first guest on the line? Great. Our first guest is actually someone I have known for years, New York State Assemblyman David Weprin. Uh, he represents the 24th Assembly District in Queens, same district that had been represented by his father, the late Assembly Speaker Saul Weprin, for 23 years, and his brother Mark Weprin for over 15 years. David previously served on the New York City Council, where he chaired the council's prestigious finance committee. And he, he was a driving force behind this new legislation. Last fall, he even had written uh, a letter to Governor Cuomo, along with State Senator Velman at Montgomery, urging the governor to consider this historic piece of legislation. Assemblyman Weprin, welcome to City Watch. Thank you for having me. So... Can you talk a little about this legislation? What drove you? How did it first arrive on your radar, for instance? What, what led you to want to take this on as an issue? Well, when I first uh, started in the State Assembly in 2010, 
a number of advocates had come to my office, uh, and at that time, uh, the prime sponsor was somebody named David Kuhn from the Rochester area, and they asked me if I would sign on as a co-sponsor, and uh, had the discussion. I said I was, like, shocked to find out that adoptees uh, in New York State could not get access to their original birth certificate. I really had no idea. It just seemed like it didn't make any sense because that birth certificate is probably uh, more important to them than to anyone else. So, uh, you know, as a result, uh, I quickly signed on, and I became a very strong advocate for the legislation. And then later that year, David Kuhn lost his election, and then all the advocates came to me and said, you're the most enthusiastic co-sponsor. Would you be the prime sponsor? And David Kuhn also asked me to be the prime sponsor. So I said, sure, why not? And uh, little did I know that it would be a battle for uh, the, last, the next nine years uh, where it was really very difficult to get it through, which really didn't make any sense. But uh, I really feel like um, I gave birth to a baby here because uh, <laughs> it took so long, but uh, it was really such the right thing to do. I always looked at it as a human rights issue. Why should someone who happens to be adopted in New York State uh, and is a citizen of the state and, and an adult uh, have any less right to their original birth certificate than any other citizen that is not adopted in New York State? It almost didn't make any sense. And, of course, uh, by having access to that birth certificate, and I think we'll find that out now that it went into effect uh, just a few days ago, that so many um, people will find out about their biological parents, about their medical history, and also find siblings, biological siblings that exist that they did not know. So this is going to not only be a major health issue and uh, save lives because of medical history, but will also reunite families. Yeah, and I had noted that the governor had issued a statement, I believe, on Friday, pointing out that already by that point, more than 3,600 people filed requests with the Department of Health seeking to get these original birth certificates. What does that say to you about the need out there? It says there's a great need, and probably the easiest way uh, to get your uh, pre-adoption birth certificate is to go to the website, uh, VITAL. C-H-E-K dot com, vitalcheck dot com. And that's probably the fastest way and the easiest way to, to get your uh, pre-adoption birth certificate. And you said it took about uh, what, nine years to get to this point. What were some of the concerns that people or the challenge that people posed saying, you can't go through with this, we should not do this, it's wrong? What were the reasons motivating them or, or that they cited? Well, well, it took me nine years, but it took the legislature over 50 years. This bill has been around the legislature for over 50 years. And, uh, you know, I came on late. I came on in 2010. But, um, you know, the opposition basically came uh, from people that felt they were trying to protect uh, women uh, that were birth mothers uh, that wanted to remain anonymous. But we had never heard from those women. Uh, we just heard from other people saying, that they uh, were promised anonymity, but we never actually saw a piece of paper that said legally they were promised anonymity because that was never the case because until the uh, adoption took place, the birth records were open. So they could not have been promised anonymity because uh, the anonymity didn't, didn't occur until after the adoption took place and these women gave up uh, their children for, you know, for adoption 
at birth. So generally, that was it. Never really happened, but it was, you know, uh, an assumption. People were saying that you know they didn't want some uh, 18-year-old child coming and knocking on the door of the birth mother, who may have remarried, may have had other uh, children who didn't know about having a child out of wedlock many, many years ago, and uh, would show up at their door and ruin their family life. The problem with that is that uh, with the internet and with private investigators. Anybody that had money could find their birth parents if they really wanted to, and that same 18-year-old could show up at the door whether this was law or not. So uh, it really made no sense. Uh, and this is, I predict, uh, and as you can see from the thousands of people that already applied for their birth certificate, this is going to be a wonderful thing. And, and these records have been sealed in New York State since 1938. How do you think that this is going to influence, or do you think it's going to influence other states because, uh, to take similar actions? Well, we're the 10th state, New York, uh, that has adopted um, what, what we call, um, you know, uh, an open uh, record uh, birth certificate, really, meaning that there and actually no redaction, because there are a number of states that have um, passed a similar law but with redacting the birth parent's name, uh, which is um, something the advocates did not want. There's about 15 or 16 states, uh, including the, uh, the 10 that have adopted uh, the, um, the pure bill, the, uh, the bill without any restrictions at all on the, uh, on the birth parents. Uh, so um, we're the largest state, by the way. We're the 10th. The last state was Colorado, which is a, bit, a little less than half of our size in New York State. But... Um, there's no question that uh, I think other states will follow uh, the lead of New York, which is now the largest state of the 10 that has adopted an open, uh, you know, adopted Bill of Rights and, you know, open birth certificate without any restrictions uh, where anyone should be able to apply uh, and get their uh, unredacted birth certificate. So, David, I don't know if you and I have ever talked about this. You know, I'm one of these uh, adopted children who will be going to uh, try to get my original birth certificate. You know, it's something that I've wondered about for years. I actually am fortunate and pro I was probably ahead of a lot of folks where I knew my original birth name, but not my parents' names. And was told when I started to research this years ago that my father had been a child actor. So I don't even know if the name that's used was his original name. You know, that's why the birth certificate will hopefully shed some light on this. I'm one of those proponents of legislation like this to put uh, my, all my cards on the table here what do you think this uh does about stigma about the you know the stigma surrounding adoption well look i think the stigma has uh, dissipated uh you know already for many years i mean years ago uh it was a stigma to have a child out of wedlock to give up a child for adoption many many teenage mothers uh, gave up children for adoption as a matter of fact many of them uh, the parents were you know uh you know, embarrassed, ashamed, and they would send their daughters uh, to, you know, undisclosed locations, uh, you know, for a number of months until they gave birth. And uh, then they would come back as if they never had a child, nothing ever happened. You know, I think that's kind of an archaic uh, thing in New York State, especially now, uh, you know, in, uh, you know, the year um, 2020, a uh, new decade. It, it just seems so you know, archaic, uh, but uh, there really is no stigma anymore, I think, to having a child out of wedlock. And uh, and certainly uh, now, uh, 
th- there was no, I think, negative of uh, allowing uh, an adopted uh, person, adopted adult at this point, to have access to the original birth certificate. And even if you know who your birth parents are, that original piece of paper, which has some information on it, uh, really belongs to the adopted person and to the person uh, that it means more to than anybody else. And uh, there's no reason why they shouldn't have that, that piece of paper. So I just want to uh, segue into your work in the assembly. Uh, session has begun once again. And tomorrow, excuse me, Tuesday at one o'clock, Governor Cuomo is going to be announcing his fiscal plan. What do you expect? What do you want to see in that budget? Well, there is a $6 billion deficit, you know, projected deficit. Uh, obviously, we have to close that deficit. Um, you know, I, I chair the Corrections Committee. I'm involved in a lot of, uh, you know, correction reform. Uh, I, I've, I've been fighting every year for increased funding for alternatives to incarceration, to edu- for educational programs uh, in our prison system. I think that's really the key to rehabilitation is, uh, is education. And I actually have a bill for educational release, similar to work release, where certain inmates that qualify uh, should be allowed to uh, get out of, um, you know, incarceration to go to a college setting, uh, you know, in, under uh, a college setting situation as opposed to having professors come, you know, to the institutions. I think it would make a world of difference, and it's already proven to, uh, to make a big difference. So, uh, so I'm hoping that there will be more funding you know, for uh, correction reform, for alternatives to incarceration, for programs dealing with uh, drug addiction, with mental illness, which, of course, uh, many, many of our incarcerated individuals that are costing the state, it'll actually save the state a lot of money. I think it could help close the budget gap if we took away uh, some of those inmates that uh, are being incarcerated and costing the state a lot of money, but really should be in uh, mental health programs and uh, drug rehabilitation programs, which already exist, and I think that alone would save a lot of money by reducing the inmate population in our state uh, correctional system. So you mentioned that you chair the Corrections Committee. Given the criminal justice reforms that were implemented in the last year that took uh, effect, uh, specifically the one abolishing bail uh, in a number of offenses, there's been a backlash in certain areas. Uh, There's a piece in the New York Times that just uh, went online this afternoon about a man who was charged with four bank heists and released again. And so he had even indicated that, quote, I can't believe that they let me out after his most recent arrest, where he then went and held up another bank, allegedly. What do you want to say about the the, uh, the criminal justice reforms that took place? Because there seems to be a, a movement to say we need to scale back on these now. Well, you know, I, I think it's a couple of the sensational cases that are getting all the publicity, but the cases where people, you know, are not incarcerated for years, waiting trial and, and for minor offenses, uh, for misdemeanors and nonviolent felonies, who uh, very often, um, you know, end up being acquitted. Uh, and, of course, the, uh, the, the famous case is the Caleb Browder case, where he served two years at Rikers Island stealing a backpack he was acquitted at trial and then he ended up committing suicide you know for his uh, experience uh, as a result of his experience uh, while he was incarcerated for two years obviously that i'd like to see more you know uh, emphasis on the good stories or the stories that you know basically will save lives rather than the the few situations uh, 
where uh, people are, uh, are committing other crimes. You got to realize the Harvey Weinstein's of the world who aren't necessarily less dangerous to society than some of the others are, um, you know, are are getting out without going to jail at all uh, because they can afford bail. So I, I, the whole idea is that whether someone is incarcerated or not, pre-trial, before they've been convicted of anything, should not be dependent on whether they can afford it or not. That's really, that's really the key to the whole situation. So we've got just about two minutes left, and as much as I have a ton of questions, I'll limit them with you, because I also know you're at an event right now, and I did not want to take much more of your time. We've got a lot of races coming up here in New York City, uh, uh, citywide races in 2021. They're expecting an unprecedented number of candidates uh, to run for city council, a number controllers up, mayors up, public advocate. Uh, will you be throwing your hat in the ring in any of those races? Well, I actually have already thrown my hat in the ring. I've actually filed for New York City controller for 21, and I've uh, been raising money. Uh, I filed with the campaign finance board, and uh, I think I'm uniquely qualified for that job. Uh, I think you know my background. Uh, you know, I served as a deputy superintendent of banking under Governor Mario Cuomo. I uh, chaired the city council finance committee for eight years in the city council. And I had an extensive Wall Street career in public finance, a very relevant um, experience. And uh, I uh, hope to uh, be the next controller of the city of New York. And if people want to learn more about your work and also, once again, if they want to find out how to get their original birth certificate, uh, I'm asking you like two different questions here. One is where they, can they go to find out more about your work? And once again, can you mention that vital check website if anyone wants to be able to get their certificate? Absolutely. Uh, V-I-T-A-L-C-H-E-K.com, vitalcheck.com, to get your pre-adoption birth certificate. And your website? Uh, I don't have a campaign website. Oh, yet, oh, oh no, your, your government your government website. I'll actually put it up on our Facebook page so people can learn more about your work. Sure. Assemblyman David Weprin, it, it should, be, should be there. And, uh, you know, through the... Uh, assembly uh, website but uh, but we will have a campaign website soon <laughs> thank you for that uh, <laughs> suggestion no problem thank you so much assemblyman david weapon for joining me here on city watch tonight thank you jeff so that was uh david weapon new york state assemblyman we were talking about the new legislation that just took effect a few days ago we're going to have two more guests coming up during the show uh, but, you know, there's been a lot of news lately. We're only in January. And with the presidential elections, the impeachment process, which is going to pick up considerably this week, trade deals, a potential war with Iran, there's hardly time to catch your breath. But giving us the latest news is our correspondent, Celeste Katz-Marston. <laughs> China is reporting a spate of new cases of a mystery virus that has hospitalized dozens of people and killed at least two. China said it had identified 17 new cases of the coronavirus, which has been likened to severe acute respiratory syndrome, or SARS, which killed more than 600 people in China and Hong Kong in 2002 and 2003. Health officials say they're concerned the outbreak, believed to have originated in the central Chinese city of Wuhan, could spread as travel ramps up for the Lunar New Year holiday. Passengers traveling from Wuhan to American airports, including New York's JFK, are being screened for flu-like symptoms and fever. 
In national news, President Donald Trump's impeachment trial starts this week, and some of his closest supporters are apparently giving up on the idea of dismissing the articles of impeachment lodged against him by the House. Senator Lindsey Graham, a South Carolina Republican, says the GOP doesn't have enough votes in the upper chamber to dump the impeachment charges outright. Here's Graham on Fox News Sunday. Yeah, that's dead for practical purposes. Uh, uh, there are a lot of senators who I think will wind up acquitting the president, believe, but believe that we need to hear the House's case, the, the president's case, answer to the House's case, and ask questions. And then that's when the witness request will be. So the idea of dismissing the case early on is not going to happen. We don't have the votes for that. So we'll play it out along the Clinton model. Like Graham, Trump lawyer Alan Dershowitz also says the president has done nothing that reaches the threshold warranted for an impeachment. The House has charged Trump with abusing his power by pressuring Ukraine to announce an investigation into former Vice President Joe Biden, who is now running in a Democratic primary for the chance to oust Trump in November. Trump has said he had nothing less than a, quote, perfect phone call with Ukraine's president. House managers for the impeachment, including New York Democrats Jerry Nadler and Hakeem Jeffries, say the Republican-controlled Senate should agree to include new evidence and witness testimony in the trial. Jeffries, also appearing on Fox News Sunday, said it makes sense for the Senate to consider new information that has come to light since the impeachment proceedings began. The most important thing is that the American people deserve a fair trial. The Constitution deserves a fair trial. Our democracy deserves a fair trial. And we believe that a fair trial involves witnesses, uh, it involves evidence, it involves documents. Uh, we intend to present that to the American people. Uh, we're going to proceed in a serious, solemn, and sober fashion as we've done in the House. Now as we transition to the Senate, we need to just follow the facts, apply the law, be guided by the Constitution, present the truth to the American people as it relates to the solicitation of foreign interference in the 2020 election. Aside from the impeachment, Trump took to Twitter Sunday to attack and ridicule another political rival, former New York Mayor Mike Bloomberg, over gun issues. The president tweeted, quote, Now mini Mike Bloomberg is critical of Jack Wilson, who saved perhaps hundreds of people in a church because he was carrying a gun and knew how to use it. Jack quickly killed the shooter who was beginning a rampage. Minnie is against the second A. His ads are fake, just like him. Trump's comments fall an editorial in the Wall Street Journal, which called Bloomberg out for remarks he made about a Texas church shooting. In that December incident, a volunteer security guard at the West Freeway Church of Christ shot and killed a gunman who opened fire on the congregation, murdering two parishioners. During a campaign stop in Alabama, Bloomberg was quoted as saying he didn't know all the facts of the church case, but, quote, it's the job of law enforcement to have guns and to decide when to shoot. You just do not want the average citizen carrying a gun in a crowded place. Bloomberg, a longtime advocate for gun control, recently accused Trump of, quote, complete surrender to the gun lobby. Trump's broadside against Bloomberg comes ahead of a major gun rights rally that has officials on high alert in Virginia. That rally is scheduled for Monday. And in local news, police are asking for help in finding a man accused of dragging a 27-year-old woman into an alley in Queens and raping her. The assault took place at about 4 a.m. Saturday as the woman walked on Jamaica Avenue near 163rd Street, the Daily News reported. Meanwhile, New Yorkers will honor the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. with a wide array of events on Monday, including the 34th annual tribute to the civil rights leader at the Brooklyn Academy of Music and a special exhibition at the Museum of the City of New York. Government offices and public schools will close in observance of the holiday. King was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee on April 4, 1968. He was 39.
WBAI is supported entirely by listeners like you. Go to give2wbai.org to support free speech community radio. Give2, that's the number 2, wbai.org. For WBAI New York, I'm Celeste Katz-Marston. Now, back to City Watch with your host, Jeff Simmons. Thanks so much, Celeste. So the nonprofit, nonpartisan National Council for Adoption had a 2017 report called Adoption by the Numbers, and that put the number of adoptions at just over 110,000. Now, that's back in 2014, and it noted that was a decline from seven years earlier when it was considerably higher at 134,000. At the time, they, the uh, council had attributed a large part of that drop to a decline in the number of inter-country adoptions by Americans. But it also had noted a number of other trends, and there was a, a positive one, that the number of children being adopted from foster care uh, had increased in 2015. So that's something that's lead me, leading me into my next guest. On the line with me now is Jeremy uh, Kohumban, the president and CEO of the Children's Village and uh, the president of Harlem Dowling. Children's Village was founded in 1851. I don't want to give too much about it because I'd like him to talk about it, but it was founded in 1851 and Harlem Dowling was founded in 1831 and they provide a wide range of services. He's also... Uh, an author, an activist. He's played a lead role in the family-supported residential treatment reforms that are transferring children's care. Welcome to WBAI. Thank you, Jeff. Good to be here with you. So I didn't want to tell too much about what your organization does. I started to, and I kind of pulled myself back a little. Can you give us a, a sense, our listeners, a sense of what the Children's Village does, the scope of your programs and services? Sure. Uh, We serve about 10,000 children in the greater New York City area every year. Um, We have various uh, programs from zero through age 25, everything from family foster care to homes where children can live with us for a short period of time. But at the core of all that we do is creating family. We believe that children need a relationship that's unconditional, and uh, we know that charity, uh, even a charity like the Children's Village or government, is simply inadequate, that you know, kids need to be with people that love them unconditionally, and that's probably um, the heavy lift of our work every day. And your geographic footprint, because I believe you're not just, uh, you're headquartered in, is it Westchester County, but you have a much larger footprint. We do. We've got. Uh, we are in Harlem and uh, Westchester County. Um, we go all the way out to the tip of Long Island and all the way up uh, the Hudson Valley towards Albany. So, so we've got a big uh, catchment area. So uh, my first conversation this evening was with uh, New York State Assemblyman David Weprin, who was one of the proponents of this legislation. What was your your views on the legislation, what did you like about it, how far do you think it goes, and what kind of influence do you hope it has on other states? Well, if I could start uh, by giving um, Assemblyman Weprin a shout-out, he has been faithful to this cause for a long time. He carried it uh, despite uh, many um, disappointments along the way, and I don't think it would have happened had it not been for his uh, commitment to see this through. And Senator Montgomery joined in, and we got it across uh, the finish line. 
uh, Jeff, we've come a long way, right? Today, 95% of all adoptions in the United States are open. And research has clearly shown that children who have access and know their family are often better adjusted. I know that you yourself were adopted, so um, I'm probably preaching to the choir in <laughs> saying some of this, but, but you know that, right? The questions that kids have, who am I, where do I come from, and why was I given up for adoption are basic questions. They're just basic human questions that children and adults who are adopted constantly ask. I think the law gets us to where we need to be. It's. I wish it had been 10 years ago or 20 years ago, but better late than never. And do you think that, you know, the uh, David uh, Weprin had mentioned that this were, it brings us to, what, 10 states who now do this. Do you think this will impact other states or influence other states to say, it's been too long, we should do this too? I certainly hope so. Um, New York is a large uh, state that is very influential in so many things that we do. And I hope that other states are watching because there's absolutely no reason, right? There's just no reason. I know that um, there have been, you know, mostly stories told about parents who wish to be anonymous and that they should not be disturbed. I have actually never met a parent who has come to me and said, I gave up my child for adoption and I wish he or she never finds me again. That just doesn't happen. So I'm sure there's someone out there, but I haven't met them yet. So you're listening to WBAI 99.5 FM's City Watch. We're also streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons. I am on the line right now with Jeremy Kahamban, who is the CEO of the Children's Village. I introduced your segment by just talking a little about foster care and the number of children who are adopted. Can you talk a little about the the stigma associated and how your organization has helped to overcome that stigma that many might, you know, many might face when it comes to adoption. Thank you. Um, Thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak about foster care, Jeff. I think uh, it's a terrible stigma and it's uh, a terribly unfair um, stigma that children in foster care are bad kids. That's simply not true. I want the listeners to just remember one thing. Kids in foster care are not bad kids. They're kids to whom bad things have happened. They're amazing, amazing young people. And given the opportunity, they'll be like any one of us. They're just kids to whom bad things have happened. And you've spoken out about these issues on a national front. As we move ahead, where do we see this landscape going? Do you see that that more of an erasure of the stigma? Do you see that there might be, especially in our in the climate in our country, where there's a lot of divisiveness right now and uh, there's uh, threats against immigrants and we're seeing uh, reforms in health care? There's so many ways to approach this. Where do you see uh, the, you know, the future of foster care going? I think we will make the changes we need to make. Change is uh, difficult and complicated in foster care. And the two variables that uh, complicate it is, one, most kids in foster care are kids of poverty. Uh, They are poor and white, or they are poor, black and brown. So 
poverty and race have always been divisive issues in our society, uh, but we are speaking up more about it and I think educating ourselves um, that poverty and race are not choices that children and people make. They're often circumstances that we are born into and we can overcome uh, those circumstances when we have people that believe in us. So I think we're making real progress here. When I came into this work almost 20 years ago, a large number of children in the greater New York City area were living in institutions like the Children's Village. That's not true anymore. Most of our children are going to live with families, and that's an amazing transition. And I think we can continue to push these transitions uh, into the future and make sure that every kid has someone who loves them unconditionally. They deserve it. And we've got just about a minute or two left. You know, I'm thinking of the governor's announcement at the end of this previous week that already about 3,600 people had requested their original birth certificates. Is this something you're hearing within your organization that your colleagues are hearing from others that this is something they now can, you know, when they obviously with children, they need to be a certain age before they can go ahead and do this. Uh, but, you know, what are you hearing on the front lines? What we are hearing on the front line is that it's about time. You know, um, for, for a long time, uh, people thought that when kids search for their parents, that they are making a statement about the adopted parents, and that's just not true, right? Kids uh, who are adopted often love the par- people that stepped up to give them a home. They love them with all their heart. They just want to know where they came from. They want to know who they look like. Uh, They sometimes have questions about their medical history. Like all of us, they want to know what their connections are. And the statement that I hear often, including this morning, from someone who is now in their 50s who said, it's about time that I can get this information. And as we wrap up, I'm going to give you the toughest question ever. How can people learn more about the Children's Village and your work? Come to childrensvillage.org, one word, childrensvillage.org. We still have thousands of children in in the greater New York City area that's looking for someone to love them unconditionally, and they're amazing young people. Come check us out, please. Jeremy Kahumbam, thank you so much for appearing here on City Watch tonight. Thank you, Jeff. So uh, I want to just go back before we get to our next guest. Where's my notes here? I wanted to just bring up, we've been talking about the changes. And my next guest, Kathy Sweat, can correct me if I say anything incorrect, because I've kind of created a few bullets on the history that led us to this point. So from 1873 to 1924, adoption records in New York were public record. But then since 1938, uh, that's what I believe David Weprin had mentioned, New York law has called for the original birth certificate to be sealed once the adoption is finalized and then a new amended birth certificate issued to the adoptive parents. That's kind of what I have, the my uh, amended birth certificate, and that states the name of the new legal name of their child. Uh, and then that adopted birth certificate can be used for legal purposes that require a birth certificate. 
and the original one had been locked away forever under the current law. No one could access, under the law up until now, no one could access that original birth certificate. So, uh, you know, and she's going to correct me if I've said anything wrong here, but our next guest, uh, someone who I had a conversation with late last week about this, and I'm so happy to have her on, uh, Catherine Sweat, downstate coordinator for the New York State Adoptee Equality, an attorney who worked closely with the assembly member. Welcome to City Watch. Hi, Jeff. So it's nice to chat with another adopted adult. <laughs> so tell me a little, first of all, before we get into the specifics, tell me a little about the New York State Adoptee Equality. What is this? So it's a grassroots organization that's led by and mostly made up of adoptees who advocate for equal treatment. And we shouldn't be treated differently than the non-adopted. And, you know, I had asked David about uh, the assembly member about how long, you know, he's worked on this. But he said this fight goes on much longer than him. I remember years ago trying to get my original birth certificate, not being able to. So what was it about this climate that led us now to see this come to fruition? What, you know, what turned the table so that this legislation could be passed? Well, a few things happened. One is that um, David Weprin's legislative aide, Jacob Sheritz, went to work for Pam Hunter, another assemblywoman. Um, Pam Hunter, or assemblymember, Pam Hunter is adopted and uh, a member, former member of the military. And so Jacob had worked on this with David Weprin, and now with Pam, the, the two of them... Um, and David thanked him from the assembly floor when the bill was passed, thank, thanked his former staffer for his hard work. So that that was one thing was Pam, in addition to David's hard work, but Pam meeting with all her colleagues who had blocked the bill in the past. Another thing that helped it happen is a brand new Senator Alessandra Biaggi from the Bronx and Michael Benedetto, also from the Bronx, introduced a different bill, which would have allowed adoptive parents to obtain their child's original birth certificate during the minority years, as well as the adopted adult getting them when they're grown up, and would allow descendants of the adoptee to get the birth record without proving that they were dead. So this more extreme bill created a climate that made David's bill more of a compromise or more palatable. And in fact, that kind of leads me uh, to another question, which is, what's the next step? Is there a next step? Is there something else that now you want to advocate for uh, to open up these records more? I'm not sure what the next step would be. Well, um, you mentioned in your in your build up that in 1938, our birth record, the law changed, and now our birth records were sealed from not only the public but from ourselves. Every single adoptee's connection to the family they were born into, to all their kin and genealogy going back forever in a legal fiction is terminated. So a lot of people think adoptees have two families, but legally they only have one. Um, everyone that they're related to by blood is considered to be a, a, a stranger under New York state law. And you have no... Uh, children who are adopted frequently have ties, deep, strong emotional ties to people in their family. 
and Assemblywoman Joyner introduced legislation that would give judges discretion to allow ongoing visitation between siblings or grandparents. It's inhumane not to give a judge discretion to allow this, and yet the governor vetoed it. And I've talked with the previous guests about what where New York State stands compared with other states. You have a really, you corrected me when we spoke uh, last week. Can you give a sense of where New York State stands as far as access to these records compared with other states? Because we were very restrictive up until this point. New York State was the most draconian in the nation. It really was. And that's why, that's why this bill is, is so dramatic. And that's why, um, you know, David Weprin and all the legislators who worked on it are to be commended. New York went from being the worst state to being at the top of the pile. Um, New Jersey does something different in that they allow adoptive parents to obtain a birth record. You can obtain it when your child is seven or eight if you need it or, or you know, whenever you need to get medical information or, or satisfy the child's curiosity, you can get that birth record. But New Jersey had some other provisions in their law that are, are not so favorable. So the the 17 states have had some sort of reaction to the issue of adoptees accessing birth records and Really, every state should allow every adoptee access to their birth record for their entire life. It's it's should never be a state secret. And when you and I spoke, it's something that was eye-opening for me because I tended to think the reaction, the resistance to legislation like this passing was very narrow. It would be like, you want to protect the birth parents, they, you know, many of them wanted maybe anonymity and that was the reason. But you kind of explained a little more to me about what some of those misperceptions were that were out there. Can you let just talk a little about that? It's it's absolutely a misperception that these laws were ever intended to protect people whose children were removed from them by operation of law or who were abandoned by them. The law is intended to protect the adoptive parents. But back in the day, being infertile was deemed to be really shameful, and people wanted to adopt children who were sort of matched to them, that they could pass off as, quote-unquote, born to them. And New York state law still says that adoptees are legally as if born to their adoptive parents. It's, it's almost mentally ill to try to pretend that, but that's still the law. The law is designed to protect the adoptive parents not the birth parents. That's an after-acquired excuse. Do you expect, you're an attorney, correct? Yes, sir. Can you expect that, can you predict that there may be some lawsuits as a result of this, that some birth parents might file suit? Why? They were never promised anonymity. What are they going to sue over? No, absolutely not. And, and even though the state was willing to maintain the charade, DNA never lies. Over-the-counter DNA tests are like 40 bucks when they're on sale. There's, 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 no, there's, there's, there's no legal basis for any lawsuits. I think I paid 99 for my DNA one. It somehow said I was remotely related to Susan Sarandon. That's what I remember. 
Um, That's pretty cool. I know. I did find that kind of cool. <laughs> I haven't contacted her yet. So where do we go from here? What's the next step? Well, we let people enjoy their new access. We lobby in other states to change the rules. And um, we have to listen to adopted people. We can't allow the narrative about this to be controlled by the not adopted. This is not about birth parents. It's not about adoptive parents. It's not about people who are facilitating adoptions and getting paid for it. Um, many, uh, many adoptive families are wonderful nurturing places, but they often aren't. There's so much money in subsidies for taking children into your home. A lot of kids are being adopted now for the subsidies. The idea that every family is a place of unconditional love is just a fallacy. Um, children stopped being committed to asylums uh, like the children's village originally was and are spending less time in foster care because of the Adoption and Safe Families Act, which puts a bounty on every child's head and facilitates moving children into families. Sometimes it's better for kids to be in short-term foster care or even in a group home until they can be returned to their family. Both, both my late husband and my adoptive father spent time in orphanages but weren't adopted. They stayed connected to their siblings and their parents. So, Kathy, as we wrap up, can you just, for anyone who might be tuning in now to WBAI and miss the beginning of the show, can you just recap a little about what this new law does? This law creates a small exception to New York State's secret see an adoption rubric by allowing an adoptee who has reached the age of 18 or the descendants of an adoptee who can prove that the adoptee is dead to get the original birth certificate. It doesn't change anything else, and it's very historic. And how can people find out more about you and about your organization if they want to get involved? Okay, New York NY Adopt Equality is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or they can send an email to New York State Equality, no spaces or dashes at gmail.com. Can I make one clarification? Yes, to, you um, can. Something that was said earlier? Yes. If you were born in New York City and you go to Vital Check, there's no way to order your pre adoption birth certificate from them. You'll end up getting a copy of the birth certificate with your adoptive parents' names on it. If you were born in New York City, you need to go to the New York City Department of Health and mail in the form. And P.S., it's cheaper. It's only 15 bucks. Oh, so meaning go into their offices to get the form? No, it's online. Oh, okay. The New York City Department That's... of Health has a, has a special splash page for uh, adopted people who want to order their pre-adoption birth record. And I'm glad you and clarified that because that's something that cheaper. I would have encountered. Well, it wasn't even just about the cost, about the process. So I'm glad because that is something that I, I do want to pursue. So thank you so much for appearing on WBAI. And I do want to, though, because you confided in me, and I'm going to out you on this, that you do have a connection to WBAI because you used to... Uh, answer calls during our fundraising drives. And I want to thank yes, you for that. I did. I want and to thank I, you. And I received bomb threats on three occasions. Well, I didn't book you because of the connection with WBAI, but I want to thank you for being connected with WBAI. I appreciate that very much. Kathy Sweat, thank you so much for joining me tonight.
Thank you, Jeff. It's good to chat with a crib mate. Thank you. So we've got just a few minutes left in the show. We've got about five, six minutes left. If uh, I will take a call or two if you want to weigh in on this issue. Uh, and Max is like, wait, we've only got five, seven minutes left. 212-209-2877. That number is 212-209-2877. Uh, we've been talking about adoptee rights, the legislation that just passed uh, that passed last year but took effect last Wednesday. And the governor already had conceded that 3,600 people filed requests with the Department of Health to be able to get their original birth certificates. I want to just uh, quote the governor and what he had said, that adoptees have every right to the same birth records as everyone else, and the new law that we enacted is making that a reality for the first time. The significant interest we've seen in just the first 48 hours of the new law being in effect underscores how valuable this policy change is for New Yorkers, and I'm proud we were able to correct this inequity. Now, yeah, I concede that I am biased in this because it is something that I do want to pursue. Uh, so I believe we have a caller on the line. Welcome to WBAI. What's your name and what's on your mind? Hi, welcome to WBAI. This is Kathy Sweat. I'm, I believe I'm on hold. Oh, <laughs> you're still back. You're back with me. Nice to hear from you again. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you so much again for appearing at WBAI. Do we have another call? Okay. So, <laughs> did, you, did you want to know how I got involved in New York uh, State Equality? Uh, you're not? still you're still with us. I thought it was on hold. Ah. Okay. Well, uh, instead of taking another call, how did you get involved with New York State Equality? And then we'll we're going to have to wrap up after that. Um, myself and <laughs> Carolyn D'Agostino decided to found it because we wanted the narrative to be based on the law and not emotions and feelings. And um, we were fed up with not adopted people controlling the narrative. Great. Well, thank. Well, thank you so. We started it. Thank you so much for for uh, uh, remaining on WBI tonight, Kathy. So we've got uh, just a few minutes left, and then we're going to head into our next wonderful show, uh, Golden Age of Radio with Max Schmidt. Uh, in the next few weeks, I'm going to provide you with a, a special coverage of the Queens Borough Presidents Race. There were, I think, it came to about nine people who filed the paperwork to be able to run. One might have been disqualified, so it's either down to nine or it's down to eight. I've reached out to all of those whose information is available, and this coming Thursday on Driving Forces at 5 o'clock, I'll be joined in studio here by Christine Chung, who is the Queens reporter for the news outlet The City, uh, not to be confused with New York City <coughs> government. Uh, Christine's going to join me in here. We're going to have several of the candidates on this coming Wednesday, starting with uh, New York City Council member Jimmy Van Bramer, followed by uh, New York City Council member Donovan Richards. Those two have confirmed so far for this Thursday. And then next Sunday's City Watch, when I'll be back as well, at 6 o'clock next Sunday, we're going to have uh, two or three more candidates, and I'll be joined by David Brand, who's with the Queen's Daily Eagle. Both Christine and David have provided very good, comprehensive coverage of Queen's politics. So we'll also try to squeeze in calls on both of those days because we want to know what you think borough presidents really should do and what do you want from the Queen's borough president? Because as you probably recall, 
Melinda Katz, the Queensboro president, got elected as the new district attorney in Queens, and they have an interim right now, Sharon Lee. Special election coming up in a few weeks. <coughs> Excuse me, dry throat, folks. So I do want to thank you for tuning in today. This is Jeff Simmons on City Watch. Stay tuned for the Golden Age of Radio with Max Schmidt.